Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gobology. Before we get into today's episode with uh, Malou of Tolu Earth in Ireland, I'd just like to make a quick mention of how Gobology is made by me, Nick. I make no money off this, and my only ambition is to reach more listeners. So if you could leave a review on Apple Podcast, even share it on your social media, or just tell a friend to go listen, that would be absolutely wonderful. And, uh, well... Let's get on with today's episode. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Garmology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is sitting in Ireland, but has a more exotic history than so. Uh, we've got some great topics ready. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself, Malu? Yeah, hi. Um, hi, yes, my name is Malu. I am, as you said, I am in Ireland. I'm in a place called Blessington in County Wicklow. So it's like 45 minutes outside of Dublin in the countryside. Um, but I'm originally from Mexico. I was born in Mexico City and then I moved to a city called Monterrey in the north of Mexico, very close to the border. So actually moving to Ireland has been the first time in the, where I live in the countryside. I've always been a, a city girl, uh, which is crazy. Um, I guess it's it's weird coming from Mexico, being in the city and then uh, being in Ireland in the countryside. But yeah, it's been great. I've been here for almost three years and now feels like home um so yeah and then in terms of what i do i am a natural dyer so i work with natural textiles giving them color using plants insects minerals clay mostly plants is, is what i usually use um so that's kind of the main thing i do um, and then in parallel to that, I am also one of the co-founders of Fibershed Ireland, which is a social enterprise. And we are working towards relocalizing the textile industry as much as possible back to Ireland from the ground up. So, I mean, from the growing of the fiber to the processing to the, um, you know, knitting or weaving or whatever you're going to do to get to a finished product, um, because that's you know uh, and it's probably the same cases all over the world um we tend to outsource our our textile production abroad um so we're trying to bring that back to ireland and to do it in a sustainable way that is actually regenerative so that actually helps build soil yeah so that's what i do on one side and then with the natural dyeing my business is called talu and i do natural dyeing for other brands that want to have you know naturally dyed garments um to sell and also i sell a few garments myself that i make and i teach natural dyeing um online and in person through workshops and and things like that so yeah my life is surrounded by textiles at the moment which is crazy because that's really not what i studied i let's am, uh, let's loop back to actually how you got started on things because there must be some story i don't think many people move from mexico to the irish countryside <laughs> yeah so um i i guess what it, it it all starts when i was a little kid no i was i'm joking um but it does actually i grew up in um 
in a house surrounded by textiles. My mom was a frustrated fashion designer who ended up studying, um, you know, education for like kindergarten education, just because that's where the money was at the time and she needed to help her parents. Uh, and my grandmother is also, also worked in textiles, um, as a, always kind of as a side thing, you know, she, she did many different jobs just because that's what was needed but um she always sewed and knitted and crocheted and embroidered and anything that had to do with with a needle and a thread um she she knew how to do and she she even ended up teaching um garment making and pattern cutting to to all sorts of people in in mexico so i kind of grew up with that with a big appreciation especially for traditional mexican textiles I am really proud that we still have a big tradition of, I guess, wearing the, the traditional textiles that many indigenous people still wear uh, commonly. And so even though I do come from an indigenous background, it, you know, it wasn't really present at home, as in this is our heritage, but we were we always had a very big appreciation for yeah, yeah, traditional textiles and Embro embroidery is one of the big things we we have in Mexico and and really beautiful weaving as well. So yeah, everyone, all, well, all the women uh, in my family, in my mother's family, were always, um, yeah, I guess wearing traditional textiles. So I grew up with that. But as I was growing up, I I loved drawing, so I became a graphic designer because that's what I was told, you know, you know, oh, you like drawing and you like designing websites and stuff that's a graphic designer's job so you should do that so that's why i ended up studying uh which was great it gave me a lot of really cool interesting i guess design um solid foundations to to go from there i also studied visual arts just because i I couldn't decide between graphic design and visual <laughs> art, so I did both. <laughs> really, I just I wanted to try everything. <laughs> that's yeah. that's that's it. That's really I I always wanted to just try everything that had to do with creativity and and visual culture and arts. Um, but I always had this kind of background of of my mother and my grandmother working with textiles. But I never pick up I never picked up a, a needle and a thread myself as a child or as a teenager. I mean, maybe once or twice to mend something or, you know, I did, my grandma did once try to learn, uh, teach me how to knit, but, you know, I picked it up, did it once and then dropped it back. I never really was very big on that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> However, at one point in my teenage years, I did think about being a fashion designer because I did love to draw the... You know, I would sit down, watch TV, and whatever the women on TV were wearing, I would love to draw it, um, just to kind of copy the design or or come up with designs of my own that were based on on that. But it was more the drawing aspect that interested me, not so much the sewing or the textiles themselves. Until, and this is where it gets where the Ireland connection starts to come through. Um, well, in university, I, I did a student exchange and that's where I met my now husband, who is Irish. Um, I went to England, to Leeds, uh, for you know graphic design and fine arts, and I met him. He's a filmmaker. Um, so eventually we, we started going out. We, we became a couple. And at some point I came to Ireland in 2018 to um, 
to visit his family for Christmas. We were we were living in Mexico at the time, and it was then that I found this book called The Slow Stitch by Claire Wellesley Smith, uh, an amazing author from uh, Bradford in in Yorkshire. And it, it's mostly about you know stitching as a form of meditation, as you know the 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 beautiful things about hand stitching. Um, and I was trying to get into meditation, but I found that I couldn't just sit still and meditate. So I thought, well, this, you know, using stitching as a meditation sounds really cool. So I started reading this book and it fascinated me. Um, and it had little snippets about natural dyeing, very little, just a tiny section. And that really caught my attention. I was like, what is this? Do you mean I can use plants to turn them into color, to color textiles? And that's kind of what, um, how it started. <laughs> that's how I started getting into textiles. And now look at me, I'm not a graphic designer anymore. I'm a textile and slow fashion designer. Um, yeah, <laughs> I can go into more detail if you want. Oh yes, definitely. But it is interesting though that you were looking for meditation, you found the slow stitch and it's all part of a, a more conscious, considered lifestyle of slowing things down appreciating the smaller slower things mm, yeah and i guess yeah it just come from having always i guess lived in the city always in a rush um and i wanted i was looking for for slowing down um and that just seemed to be the outlet at the time um having said that i i'm still I'm still always in a rush most of the time. I think that's just the way I am. Um, <laughs> I try to to live by, you know, to practice what I preach. Um, but I do tend to have to stop myself and be like, calm down. Um, yeah, I, I just, I still want to do everything, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose it depends a bit whether you're doing things because someone else tells you to or you're doing them because you want to do them yourself. And if there's things you want to do for yourself, then you do have a larger capacity for hurrying around doing stuff. Yeah, definitely. And I've, I've never liked people telling me what to do. So um, <laughs> so I, I it was always very clear on my mind that I needed to run my own business because I didn't want anyone else to tell me what I needed to do. So yeah, yeah, I guess there's an element of that. So you were in Ireland for Christmas, you found the book that gave you the revelation. Um, what happened from then onwards? Yeah, you so did, you didn't back. just find a bucket and some stuff, some plants and start dying stuff, I take it. Kind of, yeah. Um, I went back to Mexico and just started pottering around with, uh, <laughs> with yeah, with a few, a few pots and pans and, and plants and um and going from there of course um at then at that point i also started taking a few workshops so i i learned from really cool um, master dyers in mexico from a collective in oaxaca called Bidao, um who do really cool stuff and then i also learned from a teacher in outside of mexico city raul ponton he's also i guess one of the big master dyers in in mexico who still uses a lot of who mostly uses natural dyeing and is a big, big advocate for that. Uh, and then just kind of reading as much as I could on the internet, getting books. Um, it kind of, yeah, just being self-taught uh, to, a, to a certain degree. So, uh, but it started just, yeah, as an experiment, just seeing 
you know, how, what's gonna go from here. Um, and then I, when was it in around 29, by the end of 2019, I started thinking I should really turn this into a business <laughs> just because this is what I really enjoy doing. I, as I told you before, I always enjoyed pottering around and trying everything out. So when I was um, in university, I did photography, I did uh, bookbinding, I did illustration, I did like all sorts of different things and everything excited me and then I would get tired of it. Um, but I felt that natural dyeing was different in a way, I guess, because there's always a certain degree of experimentation within natural dyeing. So it felt like even though I wasn't changing an activity every five minutes, it always felt new. And so that's when I said, this is what I want to do. So I'll, how can I make a living out of this? Because I don't want to do anything else. <laughs> um, and then it, um, by that time, we were uh, my partner and I were thinking about moving back to Ireland. He, he wanted to be closer to family. And I we were just a bit tired of, of being in Mexico. So, um, so yeah, in March 2020, we moved to Ireland. And you know what happened afterwards. <laughs> Uh, pandemic ev oh, right. everybody yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> everybody was at home so that also gave me a lot of time to continue experimenting and also to start our dye garden here at the house uh, so yeah so when you were thinking about this as a business what were the sort of angles you saw as how, how would you make money doing it yeah, at first I just thought I'm going to make um, very simple garments and accessories and sell them like at craft fairs and in on Etsy. That's the that's how my that's as big as my ambition was at the time. I, I'm just going to dye a few simple things. That's when I started to learn how to sew. Uh, <laughs> you know, asking my mom, "Hi, you know how, how I was never interested in learning how to sew? Can you teach me now?" <laughs> And I'm moving to Ireland, by the way, so it's going to be even harder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you're going to have to do it over Zoom. Um, yeah, that was the that was the idea at the time. Um, but now it has evolved to, yeah, as I said, I focus more on dyeing for other brands. So um, dyeing either yarn or, or yardage or even finished garments as well uh, for other people. And then, yeah, I do still some of my own stuff which i really enjoy i wish i i kind of wish i could do more of it just because it's I, I love the creative aspect of um i guess of, of imagining a garment from from nothing to the dye process to the how it's going to be constructed and to seeing it you know as a finished piece i really really enjoy that i guess it just takes me a long time because i'm busy with other things and i'm not trained as a fashion designer so a lot of things i just figure out on my own by <laughs> reading and going on tutorials and ex experimenting um so i guess it does take me longer than than other people um yeah and teaching because people started asking me hey can you can you teach me this and at first i was terrified to be in front of a group and you know <laughs> imposter syndrome you know like um, i don't really know anything like there are people that are way more expert at this than me but i guess eventually you kind of get over that and and you realize that you, you know, there's a few things you do know that you can pass on to other people 
Yeah, there does seem to be a renewed interest many places now for natural dyeing. Yeah, I guess I came at it at a good time because yeah, there seems to be a, a big revival for it. Um, I mean, and with good reason, I guess. Um, synthetic dyes are really, really not great for the environment, um, and are for the people who work with them either. So, um, yeah, I guess there's the, you know, there's this search for alternatives. Of course, there's a question of scalability. How big can can you scale natural dyeing? There's the question of uh, permanence. Like, is it gonna last forever? Um, yeah, there's all these questions, and I guess I don't have definite answers to all of them. But my idea in my in the ideal world in my mind, there would be small scale natural dye facilities and you know with everything fiber processing facilities that are smaller that are dotted all over the place instead of one big one far away from everyone that does everything you know um so in that sense it could be scalable just i just think we we might have to think creatively about it you know small scale facilities uh, dotted around just kind of similar to how it used to be in the past um, and then in terms of permanence, yeah, of course, synthetic dyes will outlive you, you know, <laughs> you'll die and your garments will still be a certain color, but why would you want them to be a certain color after you die? Um, and also you can always re-dye your garments. Um, you can always send them to me so that I can re-dye them for you. Um, and that, and uh, then again, I do use very stable color sources. Um, and there's very, you know, tried and tested historical recipes and techniques that'll ensure your color lasts for, you know, for a long time. So, yeah, um, yeah I guess it's a mindset shift that I think is needed. I think when we talk about scale, there's, there's sort of two ways of seeing it, though, because we do have a massive problem today with the scale of amount of garments being made which is obviously way too many and the scale of naturally dyed garments which is a bit too few <laughs> so if that could increase a bit and then the other people could sort of decrease a lot then we might meet somewhere which would be a lot more sustainable than things are now yeah exactly i mean and there's already so many clothes in the world you know um so yeah i mean i do also get approached by people who already have a you know, not brands, just everyday people who have a garment that they really love, but they want it re-dyed. So I also do that. Um, so yeah, there, it will have a bit of, you know, synthetic dyes in it because it's been dyed before, but I'll I'll revamp it or dye it a different color with natural dye. So I guess there's also, um, you know, that's a good kind of transition or, uh, yeah, transition. You know, we don't necessarily need to make anything new. We can just use what we have and turn it on its head and do something different with it. It's interesting what you said that people can sort of come back and have a garment re-dyed because I was recently talking to Brian about um, the Indigo Invitational where a bunch of guys, I think mainly guys, it's a kind of a guy thing, <laughs> where they start out at the start of the competition with a fresh pair of jeans and they wear it every day for a whole year and the winner is the one that has the best fade on their jeans after wearing them for a year that's so fun yeah like Def very that, much a guy thing 
<laughs> I, I'd love to. I'd love to do. That. I'd love to take part in something like that. You know, it it really adds something to your garment. You know, it's like your own unique, um, I don't know, fingerprint. You could say. You know how. Because everyone's genes are going to fade differently. And that does even happen with synthetic indigo. You know, probably those genes um, are are mostly dyed with synthetic indigo. And it does happen as well. They rub off. That's just how indigo works. Um, now, now that you mention indigo, shall we go down a little diversion there? Because indigo is one of the sort of classic natural dyes. And we tend to, every time there's mention of indigo, we think, oh, well, that's a natural dye. But... It's, I don't think it is very often that it is actually from the plant done in the old way. Yeah, no, not not anymore. Which is so sad. Yeah, it is. Um, because uh, at a molecular level, the indigo molecule itself is the exact same one. Uh, it just so happens that to create synthetic indigo, you need a bunch of toxic chemicals like... Um, cyanide and there's a few others um just to create a molecule that plants create by themselves um so yeah molecularly it's the same thing um but since when was it i need to brush up on my history of natural dyes late 19th century is when i think synthetic indigo was discovered and it's apparently cheaper because you know, it comes from fossil fuels and, and it has all these toxic chemicals that we don't usually account for. So um, so that's why natural indigo, went, uh, you know, declined, the production declined. It also, um, yeah, there's a, a few other social cultural factors, including that, you know, India uh, was the main producer of natural indigo. And then when they when they became independent from the United Kingdom, they, they were so... I guess traumatized from the colonial experience that they stopped producing indigo for a very long time because it was a, a colonial product for them. Um, so yeah, there's it. It does also have a big element of of colonization in India and the United States and in Latin America. Um, but yeah, we don't we don't use it as much anymore. And there's a really cool company in the U.S. Uh, Stony Creek Colors, which I love, and they are trying to produce indigo at a very big scale for like a natural indigo from plants at um, an industrial scale for denim production and for brands. And they're doing it uh, and it's great. So it's possible, you know? <laughs> and as they said, it's the same molecule. It doesn't, um, it works the same way. Synthetic indigo fades um, as well with, with brushing. So why not just use the natural one? Cause even though it's cheaper, quote unquote, um, it's much, more sustainable. I think both me and many others get confused by the word natural indigo, and then we think, oh, but that's from a plant. But maybe we ought to be saying plant indigo instead yeah. of chemically, synthetically identical <laughs> something. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, and it's it's not your fault. It's also a, a lot of indigo producers will will uh, purposely be very vague and. It's also common for uh, synthetic indigo to be marketed as natural indigo when it's not. So, so yeah, it's it's not it's not your fault that you get confused. It's it's purposely done by by marketing. Um, yeah, I guess we should just be calling it plant based indigo, and 
indigo or synthetic indigo or something. But yeah, plant-based is, is the one you want, I guess. Yeah. I know um, uh, William Kroll in England, he has a brand called Tender. He's uh, very keen on the Woad, which is a sort of old English version of indigo, I guess. So he, he dyes a lot of his garments in, in Woad, which gives a nice sort of pale blue, I think. Yeah, I mean, because, yeah, indigo. Okay, so here's, if we're going on this tangent, let's go on the tangent. <laughs> I'm here. Indigo, <laughs> indigo is the the pigment itself, though, or the, the molecule, the color compound. But indigo is created by many different plants. So woad is one of them. And woad is the one that has been historically cultivated in the UK and most of Europe, France still has a, a lot of woad cultivation and historically it had loads, um, Italy as well. Um, well, here in Ireland, it's woad is even in the Brehon laws, which are a very old set of laws, it's, it's mentioned there as well. So yeah, woad has been historically the one grown in Europe, although it's native to Asia. But, and then in India, for example, there's indigo ferra tinctoria, which is called true indigo. Um, and it's just called true indigo because it has a higher, the plant has a higher indigo content and it kind of took over the industry. But again, the molecule itself is the same thing. It just varies. Uh, the content varies depending on the plant that produces it. In Japan and in parts of Asia, Korea, China, they have Persicaria tinctoria or Japanese indigo, which is actually the one I grow myself because it grows really well here in Ireland. Very similar. Um, very similar conditions, weather conditions, and it gives a higher content of indigo than woad. I do also grow woad just for the fun of it and, you know, to, to have both varieties. And yeah, it's a beautiful plant as well. And in Mexico, Central America, South America, there's other varieties, indigo for asafruticosa. So all these different plants, and there's more. Um, Af West Africa has their own plant that produces it, and Australia as well. Um, all these plants, very different, they're not even related. For some reason that we are not yet very sure of, produce this molecule that, once processed, becomes indigo. So, yeah, woad is an indigo-producing plant. It's just at a lower concentration than others, and that's why the blue is paler. There we go. <laughs> I hope that was clear. Well, I think the more I'm looking at it, the sort of, I mean, the more of it there is. Um, and you see why people are confused and why they can be so easily confused, I think, because there's such a cult around indigo and natural indigo. Uh, but few people actually, even people who are in the business, really know what they're talking about. But for the sort of fans, the aficionados, I mean, there's this cult of the plant that gives us our blue genes, and it's sort of really important to them. But uh, I don't know; it just feels so wrong that, uh, um, that there is so much intentional confusion around it. Yeah, um, it's probably been intentional, I guess, maybe from from a promoting synthetic indigo perspective. Um, I don't know. I've never kind of stopped to think about it. But yeah, it, like indigo in itself is a whole world and there's master dyers that focus only on indigo for like their entire practice. So 
it's such a fascinating color it's such a fascinating um pigment and there's such a good story around it also because if you if you said you were a natural dyer and uh, i said what, what what plants are you using you said no i don't use plants i use synthetically identical chemical mixtures but they're synthetically identical to the plants then i'd be thinking well that doesn't sound right does it <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Exactly. Um, but no, I can assure you, I use the stuff that comes from plants. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Can you tell me a bit about what plants you use to make the different colours? Yeah. So, um, I yeah, as I said, I, I use um, Japanese indigo and woad for blue, or for indigo. Um, I use weld, which is a plant that grows a lot in, in all over Europe, I think, uh, in very, like, disturbed soil in the soil that you wouldn't plant anything else that's where weld likes to grow and it gives this very bright beautiful shade of yellow um almost like a highlighter yellow and it's oh. the most um color fast of of plant uh, based yellows so it's it's really good for that uh i for red i use uh, matter which is a plant that is actually native to i think the middle east but it grows well here in ireland and in many parts of europe uh, and you use the root but you need to wait for three years before you can harvest the plant and use the root so it's actually a quite an expensive dye stuff um but it's it's really it's a beautiful plant and it, it's so easy to to take care of you just have to be patient with it and then, so those are the three main ones that I use. I also use a lot of um, tannin sources for browns and blacks. And tannin is present in so many plants, um, usually barks and roots. So I use oak, I use um, alder, which are just the trees that, that are, I guess, local to me. Having said that, for, um, you know, for my work, for the stuff that I sell, I do buy the dye extracts from France just because they they can produce a lot more dye material than I can in my tiny garden. So what I grow at home, I just use for experimenting and, and playing with. I don't, you know, what I grow is not it's not the stuff that I use for dyeing and selling because I don't have enough of it. Um, but I know that the place where I get my dye stuffs in France, don't, uh, you know, uh, uses um, organic methods of production and it processes the the pigments the dyes in ways that are sustainable i'd imagine that if you were using uh wanting dyes made from oak there's a logistical problem there in you cutting down oak trees and making dye that sounds like a pretty big undertaking <laughs> yeah no i mean the one i i use at home i just use after a big storm I'll, I'll gather the branches and i also use a lot of the acorns when they fall in the um oh. in the autumn acorns are great uh and then i know that the the dye stuffs i get from france it they it's not oak actually it's chestnut that they have but it's um you know it's it's grown in a way that they can kind of coppice it and prune it um Right. So they don't chop down the tree; they just prune it, and they have, you know, great ways to to do it in a way that it keeps regenerating itself without you having to chop off the tree and and use it up. Yeah, I imagine the regenerative part here is is pretty important that you're not actually using up nature to make the dyes; you are harvesting surplus excess 
whatever. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Uh, and also there's also a lot of natural dyes you can use at home that come from waste um, waste food. For example, avocado stones and avocado skins are great for like a dusty pink. Uh, onion skins are also great for like an ochre yellow. So I do collect all my onion, red onion skins. I do collect them after after we're finishing cooking because, you know, you eat the flesh, but you leave the skins and you use those for dyeing. Pomegranate, which is not native to Ireland, but if you happen to live in a warmer climate, uh, pomegranate, the peel, not the fruit. So you eat the fruit and the outside part you can use for dyeing. Um, so yeah, there's loads of things that you can use that, you know, that plants have various uses no it's not just one thing you can eat parts of it and then use others for dying which is amazing i just think nature is incredible <laughs> it gives us everything we just don't always see it this is really the old way of doing things isn't it before the industrial revolution demanded volume and quicker and better ways of doing it so it's a it's a move moving back to well how things were done ages ago two three hundred years ago i suppose the better tapered off a bit yeah yeah exactly um of course we now have technology which is great we can there's a few things that we can do to make it more efficient we have connectivity you know and there's better access to information there's um you know we can share better cultivation practices so i you know i think it's great that we have technology i just um i guess the obsession with like efficiency and the financial return of things is what bothers me because fo focusing only on the financial return i think puts um i guess makes you blind to other things for example the the environmental impact you know i don't think they should be one against the other i think we should just find a balance in which you can be both economically profitable but also not damaging <laughs> the environment or even helping improve it you know and also the social aspect the economic aspect the um, community aspect i think all these things should be considered for any business not not just a quote-unquote sustainable business like i just think the the focus on economic profit and efficiency uh, is is too narrow and mm. it doesn't serve us spreadsheets have caused untold damage <laughs> yeah but then again you could have a spreadsheet that took all the other things into account it would just be a more complicated one um i do love spreadsheets <laughs> but uh, <laughs> i try not to focus only on the uh, on the financial aspect but you have a bucket you have a pile of plant source material and you're wanting to dye something, what does the process look like? I mean, I think a lot of people, or some people these days, I mean, they put a pot of dye in their washing machine and have to colour some clothes. What's the sort of natural process look like? Yeah, um, well, it varies depending on the plant. But uh, So indigo is like a totally separate um, process. But generally for most dye stuffs, you you have your bucket or your, your pot and you make a big tea with whatever plant of the uh, part of the plant you're using. So in the example of matter, I use the roots. So the plant gets discarded, composted, and the roots themselves, I would steep in water to make a tea. And essentially after a few hours, that's your dye. 
that you can uh, put your fabric into or your yarn or, or whatever your fiber. So you discard the plant material, which you can, for many of them, you can actually reuse. So you can extract the plant material at various times before it exhausts um, the color, which is also quite fun. You get different shades from, from the same plant. Um, and then, yeah, so once you have the liquid, you can use it for dyeing. Of course, the big, um, I guess the secret, what I always tell <laughs> my students is the dyeing part is the fun one. But the important part is how you pre-treat your fiber before the dyeing, because that's where the, right. that's what determines whether the color will, will stay or not. So um, there's a process called scouring or washing. And this is where you wash um, the fiber to make sure that there's no um, remnants of oils or waxes from the processing process, from, yeah, from the processing um, and from the plant itself or the wool. Uh, so you wash it really, really well. And then you have the mordanting process, which is um, using some metallic salts. And I also use tannin from, like I mentioned, many plants have tannins. So I use acorns or oak galls. Um, yeah, you basically put the fiber through a, a few different baths to pre-treat it before you actually do the dyeing, the tea aspect that I mentioned before. So yeah, I guess it's scouring, mordanting, dyeing, rinsing, and then it's ready. Of course, it's, you know, there's a lot more <laughs> details in each of them, but that's broadly the, the process. Yeah, uh, regarding mordant, I probably shouldn't mention it, but I will because it's just such a funny story. But when I was talking to the Harris Tweed people almost two years ago, I think a story came up of this little family croft up in the Hebrides where they were dyeing their own wool and spinning and making tweed. But they had a they had this uh, bathtub outside their front door where uh -huh. the family collected up their mordant. I know where and this is going. <laughs> I think probably many do. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they they had a guest round and they were they were drinking and it was a merry time. And as the guest would leave was leaving, he went out through the doorway and lost his footing just as he came out and fell in their tub of mordant. Oh no! So um, yeah, the family had to get uh, get cracking again. <laughs> Creating new. <laughs> This is one of these jokes where you know, if you know, you know, and if you don't know, you don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it is, pea is a great mordant. Um, and it's it also works for indigo as well, for, for the process of indigo. It's, um, and for other dye stuff. It's it's a great natural resource that, <laughs> that we, is very renewable, but yeah, not, not very, um, not very pleasant for the dinner table and not very pleasant if you've happened to fall in a big tub of mordant either no especially <laughs> right <laughs> oh, there you go so people come to you to learn how to do natural dyeing yes is there, is there a special type of person who is interested in this or is it a, something that has sort of generally caught on mm, it's usually people who are into crafty stuff um, who are already pro most likely doing something related to textiles. So either they are knitters or they are design fashion designers or they like, you know, embroidery or something like that. Um, but yeah, usually very people who like doing stuff with their hands, crafty people. And um, mostly it's been women. Uh, 
but yeah, I mean, every time I mention it, people seem interested. It's just, yeah, whether they actually go and take the class is a different story. But yeah, usually crafty people, crafty women who who are who just like doing stuff with their hands. And they might not even, you know, become natural dyers or try it ever again. But in the moment, it's just a really cool activity to, um, yeah, I guess to do something with your hands, but also to think about where your clothes come from, to think about where the colors of your clothes come from. And just, I I always get the feedback that it's a great way to kind of reconnect with nature and look at plants in a different way, because they're not just plants. They can, um, you know, they have all these hidden um, properties that we don't know about normally. So yeah, I, I guess there's a big element about reconnecting with nature through the colors, which I, I think is beautiful. I'm thinking it sort of slots into the general resurgence of interest in the eco movement. So if you're growing your eco vegetables, you might want to do natural dyeing and many other things related to this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, people who grow their own vegetables or who are interested in growing their own vegetables are also are also big on the on the natural dyeing. And there's many um, dye plants that you can grow alongside food. There's a few that are, you know, like I've mentioned, there's a few that are food themselves, like red onions. Red onions you can grow, you know, very easily here in Ireland, for example. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's also a big element of wanting to. To grow your own stuff uh <laughs> yeah i'm hoping that will i mean i've been involved in that here for for a while now and there seems to be a certain type of person who gets into it but there's also very very many people who don't get into it and I'm, i keep hoping trying to engage more people to be more conscious about it we were doing community farming for for years and it was just so hard to find more members because it just didn't fit into people's sort of hectic modern lifestyle but we were come and grow your own eco vegetables in a co-op setting and it was brilliant you met so many interesting people but hard to get more people into it yeah mm yeah, that's a tricky one. Because, um, I mean, ideally, at, at least with food, you would want everyone to know <laughs> how food <Yeah>. is grown <laughs> and how to grow it. Because, you know, that's how that's what we used to do in the past. And it's not that hard. Um, of course, if you want to get really specialized, you know, you can make it as complicated as you want. But um, yeah, at least with food, you, you would think that should be inherent to every human being. Um, I don't know. But then again, we live in a modern world. Do we need everyone to know how to grow everything? Maybe not. But I would, um, I would hope that people would be at least interested in knowing how it's done and understanding the process, even if they're never going to do it themselves. Because um, I think it's ridiculous that you know people can be fully grown adults and not know, you know that you can just take the leaves of a lettuce and, and the lettuce keeps growing, for example. Um, and, you know, I guess the, the same with dyes, you know, that indigo comes from various different plants. You know, I don't want everyone to be a textile expert, but I think it'd be nice if people at least knew where it comes from, because I think then there's a bigger appreciation. And also, 
better understanding of of the processes and just you know knowing that the land provides your food and your fiber and your garments you know just how it happens i think you know just going to the shop and buying something and not knowing where it comes from whether it's food or or clothes i don't know it seems like a big disconnect <laughs> and i think that big disconnect has led us through a lot of bad decisions and it's just pure ignorance maybe yeah i mean my take is that i'll give people the information and hope that they do something with it but i can't personally disappointed if they disregard it and go on their merry way as before otherwise yeah. i'd go nuts <laughs> yeah no exactly <laughs> i know what i you told mean. you not to buy stretchy jeans you've seen <laughs> what they do no? yeah yeah you can only do so much you can only just uh, educate but then it's up to each person what they do with that knowledge yeah hmm. now at the start, you mentioned you were involved in the Fibershed initiative. I have to admit, whenever I see the word Fibershed, I have this vision of this little shed. And it's not what it means, is it? It's not. It's not. Uh, <laughs> well, the word Fibershed is kind of inspired by the watershed, the word watershed. So um, how much, I guess, water corresponds to a specific area um this is a catchment area yeah the I water think. catchment area so it's the same idea but with fiber um so i guess i should explain what fiber shed is for for people who don't know um it's a it's a global movement it started in california i, I want to say 2009 um by a woman called rebecca burgess who just wanted to know whether she could have all her clothes made within 150 kilometers of her house for a year. So if she could wear for a whole year clothes that were only made within 100, no, sorry, not kilometers, miles, because they're in the US. So 150 miles from where she lived. Um, so it's a big that's area. Where the, that's a big area, yeah. But You'd it's, think so, I, at least. Yeah, no, Unless I think- Unless she's living um, in the Yukon. <laughs> yeah, I think the idea was that you, you would be able to drive and you know, to the furthest and back on, in one day. But yeah, it's it's still a, a still a big area. Um, yeah, so that's how it started. It was this experiment of, I wonder if I can wear clothes that are only made within this ratio for a year. And that and it was an experiment. A lot of people helped her out and that's where Fibershed was born. So again, it's this idea of this area, the water catchment area, but applied to fiber. So um, it started in California and now it's spread all over the world. <laughs> there's fiber sheds all over Europe, uh, all over the States. There's one in India, there's Costa Rica. Um, there's one in Norway where you are. So yeah, we're, there's everywhere, but um, there was not one in Ireland until last year. <laughs> so uh, I knew about, I learned about the fiber shed movement um, just through my research on natural dyes, just going down rabbit holes and wanting to learn more because one thing leads to the other. And, you know, one moment you're learning about natural dyes and the next one you're learning about all the horrible things happening in the fashion industry. And, and then you're learning about potential solutions yeah. to those horrible things. <laughs> And that's how I stumbled upon the fiber shed movement. And I felt absolutely in love with it. I thought this to me seems like the perfect solution. Um, I guess echoing what I said earlier before of smaller processing facilities dotted around the place. So 
why can't we just make everything a bit more local uh, and make it in a way that is, yeah, that is better for the environment, that it can actually be regenerative. So, so yeah, there was no fiber shed in Ireland and I kept pestering people like, hey, have you heard about fiber shed? What if, you know, what if somebody started? <laughs> somebody should start it. <laughs> somebody should do this. And nobody was doing it. So I eventually... <laughs> I sent in my application to the Fibershed head headquarters, which is basically just telling them I want to start a Fibershed in this area. It's nothing, you know, formal or legally binding. And it just so happened that at the same time, this other woman called um, Kit Christina Kawanta had sent in her application for Ireland as well. And um, so the people in California linked us up and said, you guys want to do the same thing. You should get together and do it together. So since then, we, we both co-founded the Fibershed Ireland, uh, the Irish affiliate of, of the Fibershed movement. And it's been a great thing so far. We are, we're only one year old now. I think we sent our application February last year. So... We're very new, but um, it's crazy how much thirst for it there's been, I think. Once we started it, people have really been very excited about it and jumped on board and asked us, what do you need help with? What can we do? How this is really what we need. Um, I think you had Aoife Long on your, on your program, on your podcast uh, a few I months did, ago. Yeah. And she spoke about the problem of, of wool in Ireland. That it's and it's not just exclusive to Ireland. It's it happens um, in various parts of the world and all over Europe that we produce our, you know, that we have sheep to mostly for meat production, and the wool just gets discarded, and instead we import our wool from New Zealand, which is ridiculous. And most people in Ireland don't even know that. Most people in Ireland just think, you know, you you look at a traditional iron jumper, which is like our, our our traditional clothes here in Ireland. And you think, you know, it's made from Irish wool because there's sheep outside. I see them there and yeah. I have my jumper, but it's not. Modern ones are, are not. Are, they are made from imported wool, which is ridiculous. Um, so that was a big sticking point with a lot of people. How can we start processing our own wool and using it again? Um, yeah, and then there's also the linen industry here in Ireland, which is pretty much gone there's of course a few mills that are still uh well rather they're not milling they're weaving uh so weavers of of um irish linen but the the flax itself is not really grown in ireland anymore so we're looking at how we can change that there's i think really... that's another one of these where this is sort of um you just omit the details when there's talk about irish linen you sort of think oh well it's grown in ireland but really it's just woven but Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, to get the Irish linen kind of seal of approval, it, it has to be woven in Ireland, but it doesn't have to be grown in Ireland, um, which is it's sad. I mean, of course, I I love that these weaving um, that, that these weavers still exist and they produce beautiful linen. I love that. I just wish we could still be growing it because the weather in Ireland is perfect for for flax. So there's a farm up in County Tyrone in the north and they are growing flax again and they're looking at how to be able to get it processed for for textiles. But um, I think at the moment they're actually using it for composites. Um, so it's like a bio-based version of 
plastic, I guess. So <laughs> you mix uh, flax and, and resin and, and you get this really sturdy composite that can be used for making musical instruments and car dashboards and furniture and all sorts of things. So that's another way to use uh, flax fiber, that's I guess. Sort of, that's sort of encouraging and incredibly sad at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's great that there can be all these uses for it. Um, but yeah, it's sad that we can't be using it for, for textiles uh, yet. We're working on that. Uh, yeah. yeah, I feel like I've gone on a tangent now. <laughs> sort of in practical terms, what, what are you doing within Fibershed? Yeah, so in practical terms, we, um, we when the first thing we started by doing was we started putting together an interactive map of um, everyone that's kind of related to textiles in one way or another in Ireland, just to see what we had and what we were missing in the island. So, you know, anyone that was either a weaver, a knitter, um, a farm, a fiber farmer, so they had sheep or, or flax or even hemp, um, anyone that is a, a designer. Um, because one of the things we have in Ireland is that we're such a small island, but sometimes people don't know that um we have all these things already you know that um it's very easy to just think everything needs to come from abroad uh and there's not that many connections between for example farmers and and designers so so we just started doing putting this map together just to see what we had and to kind of open everyone's eyes to what we already have but also what we're missing and fiber processing facilities are a big part of what's missing mm. So that was the first thing. Then last year in November, we organized our first in-person event, which was a symposium. And it was really, really fun. There were, um, it was in Dublin. And at first, Kit and I were really scared that, um, that we wouldn't be able to sell all the tickets. And, event, and in the end, we actually, we, next year we're going to need a bigger venue because we, we sold out and we actually had a waiting list because people were so interested in joining. So during the symposium, right. we we spoke about the kind of possibilities of creating a, a regenerative local Irish textile system. So we had people speaking about natural dyes. We had people speaking about wool, alpaca, because we do have alpacas in Ireland as well, um, even though they're obviously not native, but they're, they're here now. So, so there's that. Uh, flax and slow fashion so it was just yeah uh, an exploration of these topics and it was great because again we, usually designers will hang out with designers knitters will hang out with knitters farmers will hang out with farmers but we had this space where the room was full of all these different people that are somehow related to to fibers or to textiles but didn't previously speak to each other so great conversations happened and um, yeah, it was very inspiring for everyone. And what we're doing now, uh, now we're very focused on, we're coming up with a verification for regenerative textiles. So in California, they have this, in California and New York, they have this thing called climate beneficial verification. So they developed a framework to verify whether a fiber is actually grown in a way that is regenerative so that um, sequesters more carbon more carbon than it emits 
um, and they can you know measure it and they're working with a few different farms to actually start growing these fibers and there's a few brands that are already using um, climate beneficial wool and climate beneficial cotton in the US so we want something similar to that but we want to come up with our own verification simply because you know we don't want to just adapt something that is happening in California to the Irish context because the soil type and the farming way the practices and everything is different so we're coming up with our own with in collaboration with a few farmers uh, here in Ireland that are either already implementing regenerative practices or are interested in so it's been really interesting we're doing it through a series of, of different uh, meetings and the outcomes have been really cool so we'll, we'll be coming up with this in the fall and then hopefully inviting other farmers to to join in and, and start getting verified because um, that's a big it's a big selling point for a fiber but also it's a it's great for for the environment um, at least in Ireland and I guess all over the EU there's this big thing of like farm it's all farmers fault that you know climate change farmers are so bad and there you know we have too much livestock and all the emissions uh whereas farty cows yeah exactly it's all the farty cows <laughs> and that's i think a very simplistic way of looking at it i think it's it's all on the manage on the way that the animals and the on the farming in general is being done it's just the way it's managed so if we can do it in a different way and we can also again for the example of the sheep if we can use the sheep for meat and for wool then maybe a farmer doesn't need to have that many sheep to have the same amount of income or even more. So, mm. yeah, we're promoting that through this verification system. What does it take for a farmer to implement regenerative practices? I mean, if they already have sheep, say? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a few different things you can do. For example, for sheep, a big one is instead of having them in one big space, um, which is kind of encouraged here in Ireland uh, for some reason by the by the agricultural uh, government agency. Um, if you have them in smaller spaces and you rotate them uh, frequently, so they're changing, they're not grazing in the one same spot all the time. This um, helps boost grass growth, which sequesters more carbon, for example. So it's just a matter of dividing up your your um, farm into smaller spaces where you rotate your sheep to kind of mimic the way in which in the wild sheep and cattle would move. They wouldn't stay in the same place. They would be grazing in different places. So the grass would have a, the grass and the plants and whatever they're eating would have a chance to, to regenerate. So that's a big one for, for wool farmers. Of course, it involves... Uh, an expense because they have to build the, these fences but you know once you have that you're you're effectively um, sequestering more carbon your sheep from what has been observed sheep actually can um, tend to be healthier because they're not eating around their own poo because <laughs> they're being moved yeah. around so <laughs> uh, and they're fertilizing the soil so that's one uh, but there's various different things growing hedgerows um incorporating civil pasture planting trees there's a few different things you can do hmm. so it's not all about getting more wool off the sheep it's actually giving the sheep a better life as well yeah exactly so it's a win-win for everyone um 
yeah, the amount of wool you get from a sheep, I don't think necessarily is determined by the way it's managed. It just depends. The amount itself depends on the breed more than how the sheep is managed. But again, this is all stuff that I've learned along the way. I'm not a farmer, so <laughs> I might be <laughs> wrong, which is why we're working with actual farmers <laughs> to tell us uh, to tell us better. There must be a lot of processes that have disappeared that are actually required today. I know I've heard of uh, wool having to be sent to Eastern Europe to be scoured and then sent other way elsewhere to be spun and so forth. Are, are there a lot of processes lacking in Ireland now that, are, that need to come back? Yeah, the scouring is a big one. Um, because, yeah, mostly it gets sent. Um it, well, if you're a small holder and you want to get your own wool, you will usually send it out to um, to the UK, to Bradford, to get scoured, and then you get it back. Um, the spinning, we still have spinning facilities, so the spinning is not such a big deal. However, these spinning facilities will only do big amounts. Um, we, we only have one small mill in Ireland. Other than that, everyone is a, is a big mill, so unless you have you know, half a ton of wool, they're not even going to look at you probably. So yeah, if we could get other smaller spinning facilities that would make it easier for, you know, for small holders who maybe not, can't get half a ton of wool in one go um, to get it processed. Uh, so that's for, for wool, the big, the big sticking point is definitely the, the scouring. For flax, to turn into linen, we have, well, Malon grows the linen and they can break it and scotch it. We are missing the hackling, which is another part of the process in which flax, the fiber gets, I guess, um, turned into fiber that is easier to spin. Um, and Lots the of very complicated we, terms there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, basically turning the stem of the plant into something that you can actually spin. Um, and we're, we don't have spinning anymore in Ireland for, for flax. And that's a big one because from what I know, even getting a hold of a spinning uh, machine is hard because they don't really make them that much anymore. <laughs> so oh. there's just a lack of, of, of spinning uh, machines for flax uh, in general. But um, but we'll get there. Um, I guess there. for for linen, for many many years, linen wasn't really much of a product people thought about until was it about two years ago? Suddenly, linen was super fashionable again. Yeah, yeah. For for a long time, it was just uh, oh, it's so annoying because it it um, creases so easily. But it's so beautiful. <laughs> I don't mind the creasing at all. And now we also have hemp coming back. Yeah. Yeah, we have, um, I know we have a few hemp growers here in Ireland. It's not being processed for fiber at the moment. Um, but yeah, I guess hemp it has the added uh, legal thing that it, getting the license to grow hemp is actually quite hard from, from what I know. Um, but yeah, it's, a, it's another great bast fiber that we could be using and it seems to grow very well in, in various regions of the world. So, so why not? So, fiber shed connecting people. Uh, what is the sort of ultimate goal? 
the ultimate goal is that we can produce our own textiles in Ireland. It doesn't have to be all of them, you know, it doesn't have to be all of our textiles that everybody wears all the time. Uh, we, we're not uh, we're not saying you can't wear textiles grown anywhere else, um, but, you know, to at least be able to do it and to have the facilities and the networks in place to be able to do it in Ireland and to help um, farmers transition to regenerative modes of production and for people to have to be better connected to the to their clothes and to the source of, of their fiber. Um, I guess it's like the slow food movement, you know, we there seems to be ever more awareness of where food is grown and how it's grown, which is great. So we, we want that for, for fiber as well, for textiles, because they are also agricultural products. With the woman who started Fibershed, the goal of having her clothes for a year made within 150 miles from her home, you must be pretty close or have solved that already for yourself. Yeah, I mean, again, what we're missing is, is the processing. We're not sticking to the 150 mile thing. We are just doing it the whole island, just because even though we are more than 150 miles radius, we are still quite a small island. Um, so there's the added thing of it's a it's a partitioned island. We have the part that Northern Ireland in the United Kingdom and we have uh, the Republic in, in the South. But um, I guess a big part of it is also increasing the links between both sides of the artificial border. Do you talk to your mother and grandmother about uh, what you're up to in Ireland? What do they think of it? Uh, I talk to my grandmother in my sleep because she's, um, she's passed away now. But um, no, to my mom, yeah, she's, um, she's always very curious because obviously the way she the way she learned about about textiles and and growing up um it was just it was different um you know it was just you you had fabric and you used it for something you didn't think about where it came from or or how it was grown um so she's always very very interested to learn more about about yeah the the links with agriculture and and the way um, it's not just about the fabric itself, but it's about how it's made, where it comes from. Um, and yeah, she's, she's tried natural dyeing as well. She's, um, she sometimes does it at home. Um, she, if I send her naturally dyed fabric, she'll use it. She's a quilter now. She, she didn't become a fashion designer like she wanted, although in the end she did study fashion design as an adult and then discovered that's not what she wanted anyway. She just wanted to sew. Um, so now she's a quilter and she does use uh, some of my naturally dyed fabrics. She started knitting now and so uh, I was recently in Mexico and I brought her some, some naturally dyed Irish wool, which she'll be turning into something beautiful, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, yeah, she she gets curious about it, and and I think it's also made her think about her own wardrobe. Uh, we also have this really cool thing every Friday uh, with Fibershed, where we it's called Friday Fashion Shift uh, hashtag Friday Fashion Shift, so where we encourage people to kind of wear something in their own wardrobe that is either made from a natural fiber or has been mended, or. Um, is secondhand a family hair heirloom or they've done themselves you know something that that represents their personal fashion ethos 
and many people have joined into that um and even though my mum hasn't directly posted on the hashtag, she, I can see she does think more about that, uh, about where her clothes come from and whether she can, I mean, she's always been big on secondhand and stuff. So uh, just, you know, she thinks more about it. But yeah, the hashtag is a great way to, to get people to kind of think about their clothing choices and uh, shop their own wardrobe because we're not telling people to buy something new just to rummage through their own wardrobe. Yeah, that is an interesting counterpoint to what most of social media is, which is sort of like, look at my new stuff. So it's yeah. sort of taking it back a bit. Yeah, exactly. And actually, there's been a few people that um, when they you know post their outfit on a Friday, they'll be like, "You've seen this before because I've worn it before." Um, but that's fine because that's the whole point of of um, you know rewearing your own clothes. So um, yeah, it's a great. It's a great twist on yeah on social media. So instead of instead of buy something new, just wear what you have. And of course, this is great for um, all the knitters. <laughs> knitters love the hashtag because they get to show off all their newly made uh, knits or their revamped knits. Or this used to be some socks, but I I pulled it apart and now I've made it into a jumper. Um, so yeah, that's great. I do live with a knitter, so I know how much. Uh... Uh, the, the joy of knitting does result in many, many garments. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a lot of garments knit, knit by her? Uh, I don't have so many. She mostly knits for herself, really. Oh. Now that I think about it, but that's that's fine. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's pleasure in that. I mean, there is something about... Um, we always talk about sort of buy better, buy less, consume less. And I mean, if you're making your own clothes you are slowing the process right down. I just know that those 15 skeins of yarn, the process to become a sweater might be three months, which means that that's three months you're not buying another sweater. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, going back to that of people growing their own food, I, I do wish everyone could at least have the experience of making one piece of garment for themselves, because I think that's when you really understand the time it takes, the work it takes. And also, like if you made it yourself, you, you're going to love it. You're not going to just, you know, toss it out um, when it you know, goes out of fashion or whatever, you know, because you made it yourself, you know how, how long it took you. Um, so yeah, I do wish people had yeah. even if they're not going to be fashion designer or garments workers or whatever even if they're never going to have anything to do with textiles again i wish everyone had the experience of making something for themselves at least once yeah i, I wish they would uh, i know from my own experiences that whenever i make something the, the sort of end goal i have in my head is never what i actually create so when it's <laughs> finished it's sort of oh, I wish I'd had someone competent for me because I just won't use it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there there is that aspect too, I guess. Um, well, or have somebody that you love make something for you, you know? Somebody, I guess, with more experience make something for you. It makes it all the more special. Um, That's part of it, isn't it? I mean, we can't all be specialists in, uh, in making stuff. And even in old days, it wasn't like everyone was making their own clothes. You had... yeah those who made clothes those who made sails those who made boats whatever so, uh, yeah no exactly exactly we can't all 
be specialists in everything. But yeah, at least having the understanding and the knowledge of what it takes, I think, is important, even if you're never going to do it yourself. Yeah, I see. We have a, a an annual Viking festival here in Hansberg. Uh, they're building Viking longboats all year round outside, so there's a vibrant sort of Viking community. Uh, but when they have the festival, they also have all the naturally dyed uh, and fabrics that are they're made, they've woven themselves and stuff, and it's, it's really fascinating. And, and the colours are so good. That's so cool. Yeah, there's a museum in Norway. I remember that did a series on Instagram on how clothes were dyed. Uh, I think, yeah, it's the, is there a Viking museum or something? There is a Viking yeah. museum with uh, Viking longboats. I don't think they have so much Viking sort of stuff on display, but there, all the all the museums have something. Other. You have the old uh, the museum in Oslo where they have all the old buildings. Mm. I noticed when I was there last year that they had lots of flax bundles of flax all over the place. It was clearly that that wasn't something they did in olden days. Um, but there is a definite revival there, and people get involved in study the old ways it's not just all fighting and drinking and <laughs> that yeah, fighting and drinking can be fun too <laughs> but yeah why not spin our own uh, textiles instead now that you're firmly based in ireland and have so much going on there do you miss the hustle and bustle of of mexico ah that's an interesting one because i i was in mexico just a few days ago, uh, I just came back and uh, yeah, it was very nice to be back in a city where you can just walk to the shop <laughs> or walk to a cafe and see your friends here in Ireland um, because I live so, um, so rarely I have to drive everywhere, um, which is fine. I, I love driving, but it was just nice. It was refreshing to, to be in a place where I could walk. Um, but do I miss the rush? Would I live in a city again? I don't know. I mean, I mean, I would probably live in a city again if, if I had to, or if, if there was a specific particular reason for it, but like every day being in a rush, being in stuck in traffic, I don't know. I don't know if I'd like it. I, I do like living in the countryside, being surrounded by my dye plants. Um, yeah, if there was a middle ground. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the pandemic kind of, calm... kind of... I think the pandemic kind of brought in a middle ground there with... Um, because even though you're rural now, I mean, you are used to communicating from home. It's not the rural life of 100 years ago. Yeah. you It's sort of rural, but with modern conveniences. That also means you don't have to see all the people you don't want to see. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, and even if I was living in a city now, yes, after the pandemic, people tend to maybe have more Zoom calls instead of driving around to meet each other or walk or walking around, whatever. Um, yeah, I guess more than the city itself, I now that I was there, there are certain aspects of the textile culture and the crafts that I do miss. Um, or rather that I wish I could have reflected here in Ireland. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we there's a very big, I mean, for a certain people, not for everyone, but there's a very big understanding of 
our traditional textile heritage in Mexico. Um, we still wear uh, some of the traditional clothes, which I think is great. And that kind of that happens in Ireland uh, to a degree. I, I guess, I don't know, maybe it's the diversity. Mexico is so big and there are so many different indigenous communities that you don't, um, that, you know, everyone wears different things. Maybe it's more the diversity rather than, rather than anything else. Um, but yeah, if I could have the best of both Mexico and Ireland, I would be very happy. <laughs> yeah. For me, I think it comes a bit down to um, people are generally great, but modern life could be dialed down a bit. So not so much flying all over the place, not so much travel, but just slowing things down a bit and uh, spending more time with people doing proper things. Yeah, definitely. Knitting over a cup of tea with a friend. Uh, a cup of coffee. I don't drink that much tea. Uh, <laughs> still. <laughs> um, yeah, we should have more of that. And less of trying to make money all the time just to survive. <laughs> if only knitting was not so hard. <laughs> it's not that hard. Once you get into the rhythm, it's quite nice. We were looking in a knitting shop on Saturday and they have so much, there's so many new Norwegian small brand wools uh, yarns coming out all the time in natural colours, all sorts of colours and there's just so much of it and I keep, every time I see this I think, oh I wish I could knit, but every time I try to knit it's just, oh God, this is hopeless. <laughs> Have you tried weaving with a with a one of those frame thingies? Maybe maybe weaving could be more your thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it could. Whenever I whenever I've seen the Harris Tweed weavers and and the like, I think, wow, that would be brilliant. And then I think, do I want a big weave in my uh, big loom in the garage? Would I use it? Probably not. I just sort of fell in love with the ideas. Yeah, I understand. Uh, I wish I could do everything, like I said. And obviously, yeah, yeah, you can't do everything. But yeah, the idea of it sounds really appealing. So I sort of do that by talking to people who know things and then I can sort of live through them for a brief period. <laughs> there you go. That's why, that's the whole reason for the podcast, I see. <laughs> it is, it is. I mean, I find things and share them. That brings me joy. So um Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. So I'll uh, say bye-bye yeah, for now. Bye-bye, everyone. And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye.